Well, good morning again. It's great to be back. I'm excited. We're starting a new, uh, what we usually call expository series, but basically what we're doing is starting a new book of the Bible. When we say expository preaching, we mean, really the easiest way to remember that is we're exposing what it means. We're exposing the text, uh, exposing Jesus in the text, understanding what it means. We try to do that here for people that are curious and just want to know more, and for those that are already committed to the text, it's something that's going to help us grow as followers of Christ. And so we're excited to be in 1 John today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 John chapter 1. We'll start going through it verse by verse over the next several weeks this summer. Uh, It's page 1021. If you don't have a Bible and want to grab one of those under the chairs, it's going to be on page 1021 in the Black Bibles. We're calling this series Certainty. As we look at the book of 1 John, it's a letter Uh, Towards the end of the scriptures, it's kind of one of the last ones right before the book of Revelation. And in this book, we we have false teachers that have stirred up problems and left the fellowship there that John is writing to. And so what John is doing is he's responding to the false teaching and he's helping us understand that we can be certain about what is true of our faith. We can be certain about what is true about Jesus when we test it from multiple directions. And so we've got this artwork here that has kind of symbolic uh, picture of a head, a heart, and hand. And, And the idea is that we can look at our faith from those different dimensions, right? There's head knowledge that has to be correct. There is real propositional truth. There's right and wrong doctrine that you have to know. There's also a heart expression of that. That's going to overflow in love and in joy. It's going to look like something in your emotional life. And then there's also the hands, which refer to what we do. Are you doing the truth? Are you practicing what is true? And so John's going to kind of keep spinning the faith around and looking at it from different angles throughout this letter. And so he's going to come back to this again and again. He's going to express it in different ways. Uh, He's going to say it's not enough to just have head knowledge. You also have to have the heart emotion that goes with that. It's not enough to just have heart emotion if you don't have real head knowledge. And so all these things have to intersect, and that's what uh, becomes his, his tests for a certain faith, for certainty about who Jesus is and what he's doing in our life. And so I'm going to read here from 1 John. We're going to read really the whole first chapter. It's just 10 verses. 1 John chapter 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. That means it was revealed. It was shown to us. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. 
Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for difficult words. We pray that you would help us to be a people of truth. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we would be open-minded to consider the certainty of life in Jesus. So God, I pray for those of us that have heard of Jesus, have committed our life to Jesus, that you would help us to grow in that, that walk, that journey. For those of us that are still unsure about who you are and what you've done, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give uh, an openness, that your Holy Spirit would woo hearts to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, in seminary working on my master's degree, studying theology and Bible, Greek and Hebrew and stuff, we were doing that in St. Louis, and we actually lived on the campus of the seminary. It was Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. It was really great because we had young kids, and so we were able to feel more connected to the community life there at the school. And so we had an apartment complex on one side of the campus, and we had classrooms on another side, and there was a playground right in between. And so we would spend a lot of time on the playground. When we first went, we had an infant and a, I guess, 19-month-old, a couple of little kids, right? We had a third one while we were there. And so they were little and just kind of, you know, learning to walk, learning to toddle, learning to climb and crawl over that playground equipment. So it was a lot of fun to play out there with those kids when they were little. Now, there were also, though, older kids on the playground, right? And so sometimes there was tension between our little, say, two-year-olds climbing on the playground equipment and sliding down the slide that's only this long, and then the big kids, right? Sometimes the big kids would be a little scary and rough to be around our little kids. And I remember talking to my wife about these kind of two or three big boys. I don't remember how many there really were, but there were you know, a handful of, of the big boys compared to our little kids, and they were like six nine, ten, you know, about that age, um, but a lot rougher than a two-year-old, right? And they're playing on this toddler equipment sometimes. It's really not meant for them. And I remember talking to my wife that it wasn't always just evil that these boys were trying to destroy things on the playground. Sometimes they were testing things. See, God has put this thing in boys. I think girls do this too, but it seems like it's especially there in boys where they want to test the strength of things. And so there's this there's this toddler playground that's like, kind of like a pirate ship or something. You know, it's one of those like the playhouses we have out here. They're these plastic playhouses or plastic pirate ships. And so the little kids can, you know, barely climb up and then slide down and have a lot of fun. But when you're eight or nine, uh, you do things like turning it over on its side and jumping up and down on it, right? <laughs> and then you might turn it over again upside down and jump up and down. See if you can rip the roof off of it. And then you might turn it over again and you might kick it and you might climb on it and you might jump up and down on it with your friends, and you're doing things that it really can't handle. But like I said, it's not always sin. Sometimes it is. But it's not always sin. Sometimes it's a genuine testing that's taking place. These boys are testing the strength of it. They're testing the certainty of the material, seeing how they will withstand the tests. Uh, just, just last week, I was at a church planter conference where I was uh, helping other pastors who have planted churches. We would assess men that want to start new churches. It's a work, a cooperative work we do with a group called Acts 29. So it's this multi-denominational network, and we come together, and we meet with men and their wives who want to start new churches, and we, um, well, it's kind of like what the kids do on the playground. It's like they feel like we're turning them over and jumping up and down on them sometimes, testing the strength of their theology. We're testing the strength of their marriage, and we're poking and prodding and turning their life around and asking hard questions and kind of pushing at them. And sometimes it feels like a painful 
process, but we're trying to make sure that there is certainty in their calling and there is certainty in their marriage and certainty in their theology, so they're ready um, to go out and do this new work. I think John is doing a similar thing with First John here. He's turning our faith and looking at it from different directions, and sometimes it's painful when you read First John. Sometimes you feel like, ow, John, that hurt, right? Like he's kind of turning you over and jumping up and down on you, and you're saying, hey, back off a little bit, right? But what he's doing is he's helping us to find certainty. He's helping us to test the strength of our faith, of this gospel that we've believed in Jesus. And so he's going to be looking at it from different angles. He's going to be testing, do you, do you have a heart faith? Is it heart only, or do you have a head faith? Do you have head knowledge of the truth? And it can't just be that, too. Do you, are you doing it? Are you living it out with your hands? And so he's going to be spinning it around and looking at it from different angles. He's testing it. He's going to be pushing and pressing and prodding. And the end result is John saying, we can have certainty. We really can have certainty about who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. And it's going to be expressed in these different ways. Our faith is going to bubble over and come out in different ways in our life. The first test or the first mark of a certain faith that John talks about here is joy. So I'm using joy from verse uh, 4 as kind of a catch-all for this section here where he talks in verses 3 and 4. So he had this prologue, this introduction that we read in verses 1 and 2 where he said, this is real, we've touched it, we've seen it, we've been with Jesus, it's real, and we've tested it ourselves. And then now he transitions into verse 3 and 4 and says, now this should overflow in your own life. This should look like something. There should be a heart expression of this faith, of this true message, this reality of Jesus that we've been with, that this Jesus that we've known, this Jesus that we've loved. It should, now, it should now look like something in your own hearts and your own lives. Look at verse 3 again. In verse 3 he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he starts off here in verse 3, before he talks about joy, he talks about the idea of fellowship. And fellowship can have this connotation of just warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Uh, We've joked about in church before, depending on how you grew up, you might think fellowship just means like a potluck dinner. Or fellowship means ice cream and fried chicken after church. You know, there's different kind of connotations we have with fellowship. And fellowship has that aspect to it. It has this this aspect of hanging out and eating together. And so there's this joy of fellowship. There's this family feeling of we're together. We live in community. We're on the same team. And John is saying we can have that togetherness if we're in agreement about the gospel proclamation of who Jesus is. So we're united now as brothers and sisters. We're like in the same family if we receive this message they've proclaimed. He says, this message, the Jesus we were with, he was in the beginning. Uh, We saw him. We loved him. And now we're proclaiming it to you. And we're proclaiming it to you so that we can share in this family feeling. Look again at verse 3. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed... Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's really the ultimate family issue there at its core, is that we now have fellowship with God. We were separated from God because of our sin. Because of our rebellion, we were separated from an all-perfect and holy God. God can't tolerate sin. God's perfect. 
And so because of the payment that God made through Jesus Christ, Jesus died to take away our sin. Our sins were placed on Jesus on the cross. So if we trust in him, if we trust in him paying for our sins, and those sins have been taken away, and we can be then reconciled to God. So we can have fellowship with God, with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's how he says it here in verse 3. So that family feeling, that fellowship, that togetherness, we're, we're back together. We're not separated anymore, but we're together. We're with him. That, that good feeling of being in his family, of being adopted by faith in Jesus, he's saying, you can have that if you receive this message that we've proclaimed in Jesus. And he's saying, if we have that kind of fellowship, indeed, with the Father, indeed, that's the real fellowship with the Father through Jesus, then we have fellowship with each other. So that makes us family with each other. We're brothers and sisters, right? Our tribe doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where I grew up. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter uh, what we're like. It doesn't matter how we're educated. Through Jesus, we're, we're now family. See, we all started off sinners. No matter where you come from, you're a sinner before a holy, perfect God. And if you have faith in this message proclaimed, this message that the apostles are bringing, if you have faith in him, then Jesus has taken away your sins and you're brought into his family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have restored fellowship with God and we have restored fellowship with each other. That's that family feeling. That's that feeling of togetherness. We're going to see in a minute that that's not where fellowship stops. There's more to fellowship. Fellowship is a word that that can mean that family togetherness, but also means more than that as well. But I want to move on to verse 4 where he says, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so again, we have this Ah, feeling of family. We're together. We're on the same team. We're okay. We're reconciled to God. And because of that, we're reconciled to each other. We, we like each other. We can be with each other. We can be family together. We can have fellowship. And he says, and this makes our joy complete. And this word complete is actually a word that has more of a tendency to be translated as, as overflow. So it's like a, a kind of bubbling up fullness. So when it talks about completion, it's like this fullness here. And so our joy is something that is full and overflowing. Even the word itself, joy, is a word that um, connotates uh, overflowing. It's this idea of something that bubbles out. So some of you have may, may have heard this taught by preachers and Sunday school teachers, and I don't want to be too hard on them, because I think I've probably even taught this kind of thing myself, but tell me if you've heard this before, that happiness is something you might show on your face, but joy is like a deep spiritual thing. Have you ever heard that distinction made before? Okay, that's, that's like 10% true, Okay. I mean, that's, there's kind of some truth there. There, there is a sense that, that I can be grieving. I mean, we, we do funerals here, and, and that's part of what's happening at a funeral. You're, you're, grieving, you're crying, you're sad that you miss someone, but there is kind of an under-the-surface joy that they're okay if they're in heaven, right? That everything's been made right for those that have passed on to be with Jesus. And so there, there can be a mysterious kind of side-by-side joy and grief as a Christian. But that's not normally what joy means. Joy normally means happiness that's bubbling over that people can see. That's normally what joy means. And so we don't want to cause too much of a division between happiness and joy. They're, they're kind of the same thing. So if I have joy, I'm going to be happy. It's going to overflow. People are going to see it. And so we have to be very careful about that, especially in particular uh, tribes, particular like denominations, particular backgrounds where we kind of tend to stuff our expressions. I think I come from, from that kind of people. You know, I've taught to be very stiff in my manner. And so I'm trying to learn to be more happy, more expressive, because when I read the Bible, the Bible says that's what Christians are supposed to be like. We're supposed to express joy, this overflowing joy. Our joy should be complete. We should be happy that we're reconciled to the Father. 
and we're reconciled to each other. So this joy should come out. A picture of, of what I think this looks like is a percolator. Have you ever used a percolator coffee pot? You ever seen one of those? Um, so first of all, I'll just tell you, this is a safety hazard, this picture. Do not take the lid off of a percolator while it is percolating. I don't know how the photographer survived this, but the way it works is it, you know, it, it heats up the water, it boils the water, and that hot water bubbles over, right? So a normal drip coffee maker just drops drops of hot water from the top, but a percolator bubbles it all around from the inside. It's this overflowing process, and that's what joy should look like. We should, we should express it. Joy can't be something hidden. If, if your joy is hidden and nobody sees it, you don't have joy, Okay? If it never comes out, it's not joy. If you have joy, joy is something people see and it is something that will overflow. Again, like I said, there's, there's times, there's seasons to grieve. There's seasons to be sad. And the scriptures say that those of us who are believers, we shouldn't just force people to always fake it and be joyful all the time when they're not. We should grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. But joy should come out sometimes. We should overflow. We should celebrate it. And John is saying that at its essence, joy is something that will be complete as we agree with each other about this message of Jesus. Jesus has taken away our sin, and that helps us to have fellowship with each other and an overflowing joy, a joy that's complete, a joy that bubbles over. And so my first question for you is, do you have that joy that, that bubbles over? It's described, another couple of places it's described is in John chapter 4, so the Gospel of John, not the letter of First John, but the Gospel of John, the bigger one earlier in the New Testament, in John chapter 4, he talks to the Samaritan woman that you can come to this kind of supernatural well that will overflow and, and it will satisfy your thirst forever. He says that, that's what joy can look like, being eternally satisfied in Jesus. And then John chapter 7, he talks to a crowd and he says that if you come to him, to Jesus, that springs of living water will overflow within you. There will be this overflowing, this bubbling up. And so that's my, my question for us is, is that, are people seeing that? Is that overflowing within us? Is joy coming out of our life? And then my other question is, are you in fellowship with other Christians? It's not enough to just have a universal doctrinal fellowship of we agree doctrinally that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and so we're part of the worldwide fellowship, in kind of invisible spiritual fellowship of all Christians everywhere. That's great, but are you in fellowship with with real people too. Like, all right, is your joy overflowing and do you have that family togetherness with, with other people, with real people? Are you walking with Christ with other people? Because that's what John is talking about here. Sharing your joy in fellowship with others, letting it overflow and being connected to others. The next thing that I want us to look at is holiness. This word holiness is not even in the text, but I'm using it as a summary word for what he's going to talk about here in verse 5 and 6. So if you look at verse 5 and 6, he's going to talk about something that we would typically express as holiness. Holiness means to be set apart. It means to be different. Um, the words saint and sanctify and holy are all from the same Greek root in the New Testament, and it just means to be special and set apart for God's purposes. So he describes this in verses 5 and 6. Uh, real Christianity should look like something. It should be holy. It says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So it's talking about the perfection and the purity of God, the, the way that God exposes our sin. He's like light. Imagine 
uh, if you turn on a light in a garage and a cockroach scurries away, right? We're trying to hide from the light. And, and the scriptures tell us that God is light. In the Gospel of John, it tells us in John chapter 1 that God is light, but because men love doing their evil deeds, we want to hide and scurry away in the darkness. But God is light and he exposes everything by his pure and awesome holiness. So God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now I want to clarify, this doesn't mean if we ever do anything sinful at all, we lie. It's saying if we purposefully say, God doesn't care, I can do what I want, he's saying that's not a real faith. If you say, I'm going to walk in the darkness, I don't really care what God says, I'm going to do what I want, that's, that's not a real faith. I have a picture here of, of a toddler hiding under a sheet. Have any of you ever done this kind of thing where you, you did something you knew was wrong and you just wanted to, you just wanted to hide, right? You just wanted to, uh, I mean, maybe as adults we don't hide under a sheet. Maybe we just want to, like, curl up under our desk or something, you know. And, um, but sometimes we have these feelings. It's talked about in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve realize they sin and they're talking to God and they said, we knew that we were naked and so we hid, that feeling of, I've been, I've been found out. Like, I'm not, I'm not okay. And I believe what the scripture tells us is that there's kind of two options we can have. One is we can act like it doesn't matter. Say, God doesn't really care. I really am okay. Even though I know deep down I'm not okay, I really am okay and it doesn't matter. And I'm going to walk in darkness. Darkness is awesome. Evil deeds are awesome. It doesn't really matter what God says. And there's a lot of that happening in our culture where we say, um, because it's too hard for me to live the way God wants me to live, I'm going to live my own way and then act like God doesn't care. We're just going to change God's standards or change what we say about God and say it doesn't matter what we do. And John is saying, no, God, God is light. In him there is no darkness. You have to keep that straight. The, the real faith is clear about God's holiness, his, uh, his perfection, his righteousness. So don't change the story. Be honest about it and say, I don't like God. I don't want to do what he says. I'm going to go do this other thing. But don't say God's okay with it. Don't say it doesn't matter. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so I just want to clarify, there, there should be kind of two groups of people here. There should be uh, one group of people that are really actively pursuing God, trying to walk in the light, trying to pursue him. People here who are here because they want to grow in the word, they want to fellowship with other Christians, and they understand that Jesus is their only hope. And Jesus has forgiven their sins, and so you want to grow in following him. There should be that category of people. There should be another category of people that aren't sure, that are asking questions. And I want you to know we're glad you're here. You, you don't have to be on the, on the road of pursuing God. You, you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus to come here and be our friend. We, be lo- we believe that we love because God first loved us, so, so we love you, whether or not you're a follower of Christ. We, belove, we believe that, that he loved us as a friend, that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. And so we, we believe it's good to befriend those that are still trying to figure out what they believe about God and what they think about Jesus. And so if you're not sure, if you're questioning, we're, we're glad you're here. And we say that a lot, but I just want to make sure that we say that again. We, we want you to be here. But there's a different category of person that John's describing here who says, I'm all in with Jesus, I'm on the team, 
but I'm going to do whatever I want. And he's saying that category, we're not okay with that category. Like we're, we're not okay. That's confusing to people. Either say you're a follower of Christ and pursue him or, or say I'm not. I don't know what I think about him. I'm not sure if I trust him. I'm not sure if I want to do what God says. Be honest about it. As we, we talk about this, one of the things that we will continue to emphasize here is the importance of being in community with others, and we talk about this as missional community. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, it can be easy to misunderstand this, and in context with everything else he's saying, because of everything else he's saying, we know he's not saying, if we walk in the light, then Jesus will, as a result of us walking in the light, forgive us of our sins. What he's saying is that if we walk in the light, we know that Jesus has cleansed us from our sins. We know that that's happening in our light. The, the proof of being someone who is a forgiven sinner, who's saved only by grace, not by your works, the proof of that is that you're walking in the light. You're trying to pursue him. You're allowing your deeds to be exposed. You're being real about your sin, but you're also trying to follow and, and do what's right. You're trying to pursue holiness. So he's saying that that is the fellowship that then occurs. We have fellowship with one another. If we're walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We describe a lot our community here as missional community. And so if your mission is to walk in the light, is to pursue God, is to, is to try to be more like Jesus, trusting in his grace, but pursuing what he asks you to do, following him, then that bonds us together in fellowship. And so the first point we talked about fellowship being this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling of being family together. Fellowship also in the New Testament era was a word that meant a business partnership. So fellowship is not just a family feeling. It can mean that. But fellowship is also a real partnership based on shared commitments, shared purpose, shared mission. And that's what John is talking about here. If you're really a believer, if your faith is real, you're pursuing God. You have a shared purpose of trying to walk with him and grow in him and walk in the light. So John's saying that that's another kind of fellowship we have. We have this fellowship of family feelings, of joy overflowing, of, hey, we're on the same page. That expresses itself in our joy and our happiness to be together. But we also have a shared mission and purpose. And that's another kind of fellowship that we have. And so we encourage you to, to become a part of that kind of, kind of community. Walk with other people that are pursuing God. So we want to encourage you in that. I also want to make clear, though, that there are boundaries here. And, and so we're always saying that if no matter where you are in your faith, right, you're welcome here. We've said that. I'm saying it again right now. We, we want you to come. We want you to hear what we have to say. But there's actually a category of people that we don't want here, Okay. I mean, this really falls in line with the, the sermon we talked about last week, sexual assault. There's a category of people we don't want here, and that's predators. And so generally, we welcome you. We want to help you grow. If you're here to grow or if you're just here curious to find out more about Jesus, we're glad you're here. But if, if you're a predator, my reaction is more of one of like wanting to punch you in the face, right? Like you're not welcome. Um, we, we don't want you. If you're a predator here pre to prey on children, to pray. On the week, we, we don't want you here. If someday God works repentance in your heart, th then we can talk, but don't come here as a predator. And so we just want to make that clear. There are certain classes of people that, that we want to find and, and push out. And that's those that, that don't want to change, that don't want to seek help, 
but are here to hurt others. And, and so we have a protective feeling. As shepherds, we have a protective feeling. I mean, one of the main things that shepherds do, so as the pastors and elders of this church, we're called the shepherd people. And so one of the main things that shepherds do, right, is feed the sheep. And so a lot of what we do is, is feeding. But another thing that shepherds do is shoot wolves. And so we want to we push away people that are threatening to the flock. And so I just want that to be clear. I, I, I don't carry a gun, so I don't mean it in that sense. But, but we do want to find you and make sure you know you're not welcome. Now, again, someday God works repentance in your heart, then, then there can be boundaried and safe ways for you to integrate into a fellowship. But if you're here as a predator, we, but you're, this is the wrong place for you. If you're here as a predator towards children, this is the wrong place for you. We're also protective of our, of our young ladies. If you're here as a predator, as a sexual predator towards young women, we, we don't want you here. We're protective of the covenant marriages in this church. If, if you're here and you're playing around wanting to toy with the faithfulness of covenant marriages and pursue things that are already boundaried off in a marriage, and, and we want to tell you we, don't, we really don't want you here. This is the wrong place to be. And so I just want to clarify that, that, man, generally, you're welcome, right? Happy face, come on in. We want to share Jesus with you. But if, if you're threatening the sheep, we're going to do what we can to protect the sheep. The last thing I want us to look at is truth. So those first kind of sections, we're looking at the, the heart aspects of our faith, joy and fellowship and joy. The second one was looking at the uh, hand aspect of it. And uh, that hand aspect is, is expressed in doing the truth, right? Holiness, living it out. I uh, just want to explain one word before we move on to the truth section. In verse 6, it says, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse 6, that's literally do the truth. We'll come back to that a lot throughout the, the book of First John. And so... It's not enough to know the truth, but you have to do the truth. And again, that's why we use the artwork with head, heart, and hands. You have to, you have to do what's right. And the road to doing what's right then comes in the truth section now, where in these last few verses, in verse 8, 9, and 10, you have to start with admitting your failure to do what's right. You have to start with admitting your failure. And that's the doctrinal piece, the head knowledge piece, apostolic doctrine, the the doctrine that Jesus gave to the apostles was that Jesus is the answer. We can't save ourselves, but Jesus is our hope. And that's the message that John saw and heard and touched for himself in Jesus. And now he's sharing it, proclaiming it uh, to the others. And, and this doctrine is important. Look at verse 8. It says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so in that last section, talking about holiness, there are some that would say, uh, what you do doesn't matter. And so they would redefine sin, right? God doesn't care. We can be walking with God and doing whatever we want and he doesn't care and everything's fine. There's kind of a reverse problem uh, where people deny that they have sin at all. They don't admit their sin. We have to admit that we have sin. Sin is real. And so he's not saying that Christians are people that never sin, right? You, could, you might swing the other side and go, oh, well, the real Christians are the ones that care about holiness. So you can fall into this kind of pharisaical walk where you start to say, well, I'm different than those bad people because of all the good things I do and the real Christians 
do what's right and the bad Christians don't. And, and people like that tend to fall into saying, I've conquered sin. I have victory over sin. I don't sin anymore. And John's saying, watch out. We're, we're all sinners. I mean, that's at the heart of the gospel is that we're sinners that need Jesus to fix us. And so don't say you don't have sin. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, confess is literally say the same thing as. It's homo, homo legeo in Greek. It's say the same thing. You literally say the same thing as God. You look at what God looks at and you agree with God. You say, yes, I have sin. You agree with God about the payment that he offers in Jesus. It says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we're saying it's not certain, it's not real if you deny sin. But if you confess and admit that you have sin and trust in what Jesus has done for you, then he forgives you, takes away your sin. He cleanses you, he transforms you and makes you into a new person. And it's a process, but God will do that if you'll look at your own heart and admit and confess where you stand with him. I have a picture here of an x-ray. I, I broke my arm maybe 10 years ago, broke my ulna. That's, that's not my arm, but that's another ulna fracture I just found online. Um, you might not know that you've broken your arm if you have a lot of pain in it. And so you'll, you'll go to the doctor and you'll say, I think maybe I broke my arm. And they'll take an x-ray and they'll show you things that you can't see on the outside, right? Because my, my skin covers my bones. And so you can't see my bones. You don't know if my arm's broken or not right now. But a doctor can take the x-ray and look at it and say, yeah, you're on the inside, you're broken. God can see your heart. God knows you're broken. And you know what? You know too. You know something's wrong. And Christianity says that if you admit that, if you agree with God about the brokenness on the inside, that, that you can have hope in Jesus. That Jesus will take your sins upon himself. That they were nailed on the cross with Christ. They died with him. And so now we can rise and have new life with the resurrected Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never come to that point of admitting, confessing, I'm a sinner, and Jesus, I need you to take away my sins. I need you to forgive me. If you've never come to that point, I want to encourage you to come to that point now. We're about to share in communion together, which is a, a covenant ceremony where we renew our covenant saying, Jesus is my food and drink. Jesus is the one that took, a, took away my sins. Jesus is the one that filled me up and gave me life. So I want to encourage you, for some of you, you've, you've never shared in communion in a way that's, that's true, that is an expression of knowing with certainty that Jesus is your life. I want to encourage you to, to join with us today. If you see for the first time, I'm a sinner. I need the salvation offered in Jesus. He can take away my sins. He can give me life. I want to encourage you to join with us today. If, if you're still asking questions, we'd ask you not to join with us because we see it as a, as a family ceremony, as a way of publicly declaring we, we agree about our sin problem and we agree about Jesus being the solution. And so we share in it together as, as family. I'm going to pray for us and I'll ask the men to come forward that will help to pass out the communion elements as I pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you gave your son Jesus for us and we pray that you would continue to renew and remake us. Help us to be certain of the gospel that you've given us in Jesus, the good news of life. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.